been in a teaching series called The Skeptic and the Believer. And we are in week three of that. And I really felt like I wanted to do this series because in our culture, I mean, it's always been um, a discussion in culture about faith versus culture or faith versus science, or do we believe that the Bible is accurate? And it just seems that those disagreements are ramping up more and more and more as the, as the culture divide increases, as the social war continues to con go on. We, um, we face questions as believers, and maybe you're here as a skeptic and you're like, I'm here because I wanna hear what you have to say because you may not believe all the things in the Bible. So we wanted to do this series just to answer a lot of the questions or some of the questions that people have in regards to faith. There are some kind of common things that I hear that are roadblocks for people when they want to either read the Bible or when they want to give their life to Jesus or even just believe in God. It's, can we even believe that the Bible is true? Isn't the Bible outdated? Wasn't it just written down by a group of men in the third century? Um, did Jesus even come to earth? Did he die and rise again? Now the rising again, we talked about that last week. That's a pivotal thing, and we gave, and I talked about how there is good, credible evidence for us to believe that Jesus was on the earth, that he taught, those are all historically verifiable, and also that he rose from the dead. And if you missed some of the last two weeks, you can always listen back on our website or on our app. So today, we are going to talk about science and faith, and this idea that those two camps, science and faith, are at odds. They don't get along. You either have to be a science person or a faith person. And if you're a science person, you say, well, I use my brain and I want to think about it and I don't want to just turn off my brain and blindly believe something that my Sunday school teacher said. So science people say, well, we, we think about it. And then the faith people just say, well, just believe, just believe. And don't worry about what the science says. Don't worry about the dinosaur fossils because those didn't really happen. And we just call them Jesus horses in the church world and all those things, right? So we kind of have that combination of, of conflict there. So I wanted to talk about that today in light of science and faith, especially the how we got here, the universe, how it was created. Does God exist? Is there a creator that created everything that we see, everything that we are in our bodies, or did it happen through the Big Bang and evolution? So we're gonna solve all of those questions in 34 minutes, okay, you ready? But as we start today, I wanted to just put up a slide of some resources that I have been reading um, in preparation for this series. Some of these books I've read a long time ago. If you want some resources for all the things that we're talking about, um, some of these, that first one, Problem of God, I read that a few years ago. It's by a, a local pastor. He's Canadian, so that's why I get it for free. Um, the, lo the Problem of God by Mark Clark. And then the second and third one were ones that I read for just this series this time very scientific approach, but from a believer's perspective. So Francis S. Collins, a believer in God, was also the head scientist for the Human Genome Project. So smart people, right? These are the scientists, these are the people that have explored all the science and yet have come out with an understanding that there must be a God. Um, and then some classics, Mere Christianity and The Case for Christ, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and then the last two are books that were recommended by people in the church as well. So if you want some uh, resources to read about this, if you have questions, because I can, I can barely, well A, I've got 30 minutes, so I can barely scratch the surface, and B, I am not an astrophysicist or a biologist or anything that ends in an ist. 
I have a bachelor's degree of church music from North Central University. So there's, I'm, I'm somewhat limited. I can conduct a choir if you need me to do that, but as far as discussing the creation of the universe, you might want to dive in with someone who maybe knows a little bit more what they're talking about. But I've read a bunch of these books, I thought this through, and I want to talk about that today. This perception that science and faith are at odds. Can you be a person of science and a person of faith? The people on that list, a lot of them actually, the people that wrote those books, started out with a very analytical, scientific approach, and they wanted to research all the things they had heard about the Bible and about God as a way to disprove it. They started researching because they wanted to prove that God didn't exist. And in their scientific research, they discovered that there's no other explanation than a loving God, and they became followers of Jesus because of their research. So you can be a person of science and a person of faith. And I think the, the opposition between those two has, has, often has more to do than just what we believe in the science. Sometimes there's other factors. For example, I believe that some people are skeptical about faith because they really don't want there to be a God. Because if there's a God, then that changes how they live. If there's a God, all of a sudden they have to realize, I might have to be accountable for some of the things I do someday. I might have to realize that I am not the God of my life, but there is a God who is over my life. And so a lot of people are skeptical because they just don't want there to be a God. And on the flip side, I believe there are believers that doubt the science because they just don't want to change their behavior or because they think that if they believe in science that somehow that's like an attack on God and they're really insecure about their faith and they think if science makes a discovery, well, then that proves that's a point for science and I got to deny it because then I get a point for God, right? And it's not a war. And that is a flawed way of looking at things when we see it like that. When things are unexplainable by science, we tend to say, well, that must be God. But then when they're explained by science, we then think, well, maybe God doesn't exist. Now, that is a flawed thinking that even in some of the books that I read, they refer to this as the God of the gaps, not the God of the gap, the store, the God of the gaps, the things that we can't explain through science. Then we put God in those gaps. We put God in those places. And then all of a sudden, when science gives us evidence for how those gaps actually happen, then we see that as a reason not to believe in God. That is not a good way of thinking. When something is scientifically proven or explained, it does not mean that God is any less existent, right? If you believe that God is the one true God and he created everything, when science discovers something, it's not a threat to God. God is not fragile by what the scientists discover. If you believe that there is one true God over everything that created the laws of science and created the universe and gravity and physics and all of these things, you should not be so threatened when science discovers how God did it. That's how I look at it. When science makes a discovery, I'm like, that's pretty cool how God did it. So the two can exist. They can coexist. An example of this God of the gaps thinking was many, many, many years ago, you know, in, uh, especially in the Greek culture, ancient Greece, they had no idea what caused lightning and they would see lightning from the heavens and they thought it was a heavenly, like a God thing. So they had a, a God for lightning, specifically a lightning God. Well then, you know, years and years later when scientists discover what actually causes lightning, then they're forced to say, oh, our lightning God must not exist because science proved him wrong. 
or it was widely believed a long time ago that the earth was the center of the universe. And this was the, ba the belief because mainly Christians had put forth that belief because they looked at how God created the universe and how the earth was central to God's creation. And then there's times in scripture where God says, I laid the foundations of the earth. Now, if something's got foundations laid by God, it doesn't move. And so they just had this view that the earth was stationary and the center of the universe, and then everything revolved around that. Well, then science gave evidence that, no, the earth actually revolves around the sun. And the people who were most opposed to that thinking when it first came out were the Christians, were the Bible people, the God believers, because it went against their view of what they thought the Bible said about creation. They thought that view of the earth revolving around the sun was heresy, and it threatened the existence of what they thought God was. So I want to encourage you today. You don't have to be fearful of science. It doesn't mean God is less existent. It doesn't mean you have to defend God by denying the validity of science. The two are not against each other. So as we dive into this today, I want to point out a couple of things about science. It does not have all the answers. Science is, we've made great scientific discoveries and advances over the last 100 years especially, and that has been great for our society as far as treating illness and disease and other great discoveries, but it doesn't have all the answer. Every credible scientist would say that although we've come so far, there are things that science does not know or cannot explain. And that's because science really is good for analyzing what exists. You take something that exists and you say, well, scientifically it's made up of these molecules and these chemicals, or this is what happens when you do this. You look at gravity and this is the force of gravity and the speed that something falls. And it takes something that exists and then analyzes it. That's what science does. Science cannot tell you why something exists or how it came into existence. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. So I want to just start with this, and this might be more for like the high school or college age students. Someday, you might get into a university or a college somewhere, or in high school, where there's a teacher that says, you're a Christian, well science proves that it's all made up, that the Bible is made up. Why would you believe in God when science proves that there is no God? And I just want you to know, those professors are not being truthful. You might not have all the answers, but you can at least say respectfully, you don't know what you're talking about, right? Be respectful about it. <laughs> and they can come talk to me, or better yet, somebody with a higher degree than a church music degree from North Central University, right? But you have to know this, they are not being truthful. There are smart people who can tell you otherwise. Many of the top scientists, biologists, astrophysicists, geneticists, and all the other ists, it's hard to say, my jaw gets sore, are believers in a God who created everything. A lot of those writers of those books, scientists that believe in a God who created everything, that scripture can be trusted. So in light of what we believe about scripture, I wanna start at the beginning. Uh, this is Genesis 1, 1 through 3. We're not going to go through the whole Bible today, in case you're wondering. But if you've never read the start of the Bible, it's a pretty awesome start of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And I love this line. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. I love that. That's the, what we believe is the start, that God said, let there be creation. 
and there was creation. We believe that God exists outside of time and space so that he always has been. And then he created everything that we see and know. So I believe we have made, we have given good evidence why scripture can be trusted as accurate. I believe in one true God that created everything. And as I said, as science makes discoveries, we can say, oh, well, that's cool how God did it, right? That's cool how God set it up. So I want to look at that today, the existence of God in light of science. And there's a couple of things I want to point out or a couple of topics I want to address. And they are actually, um, this thought was spurred in my mind because of a quote by one of the most influential philosophers of all times, Immanuel Kant. Uh, he quoted... This, as he studied the universe and studied humanity and studied biology, and he looked around and he had a couple of things that he could not answer for, and it said this. He said this, two things fill me with constantly increasing admiration and awe the longer and more earnestly I reflect on them. The starry heavens without and the moral law within. This is something that scientists cannot explain, is when did it, how did it all happen? What caused all of this to come into existence? Now they have theories, but their theories. And also, why do we have a moral law? Why do we have in us the sense of what is right and wrong? If it was just biology that evolved over time, if that's all it was, there's no reason for humanity to have any sense of any higher moral law. And this is what the philosopher couldn't understand and couldn't address. So I want to talk about both of those things this morning. And the first one, we're going to talk about that moral law that we have in us. This sense, we all have a sense of right and wrong. Whether or not we do it, kids, you know what's right and wrong, even though you say, I didn't know. We know you know, right? We all have this sense of what is right and wrong. For example, I think it was about five years ago, um, in, uh, in, I think it might have been in Florida somewhere, there was a story of a man who was disabled and he had fallen into a small body of water, a pond, and because of his disability, he could not get out of the pond and he was struggling and struggling to get out and he was drowning and he couldn't get out and eventually he drowned. Now, that story is heartbreaking enough. This man lost his life. But while this was happening, it was discovered that there was five teenage boys who were watching this whole thing happen were not helping, but were rather filming it with their cell phones and like making jokes to each other about it. So they watched while this guy drowned, taunted him and filled, filmed him with the cell phone. Okay, now I see some of you shaking your head because we all have the same reaction. That's terrible, right? We would say that that's terrible. Why do we say that? Because we would say those five boys were watching something bad happen and the right thing to do would be at least to try to help. The sheriff that was investigating this, this story said, um, I guess I got this quote here. I want to think that there's a natural instinct for any of us. Now quote that, or remember that word, natural instinct. The sheriff said, I want to think there's a natural instinct for any of us that if we saw somebody in trouble or somebody having an issue that we would at least try to get them help. And we would agree. We would all agree on that, right? So why do we think that? What is it in us that causes us to say the right thing to do would be to help this person? And that by not doing anything, that's the wrong thing to do. That lends us to say there is some sort of moral standard that we adhere to. And we will hear it if kids are out in the playground and they're making up rules to a game, you'll hear it all the time. That's not fair. Or I get to go because you went first last time. Or I was first in line and now you have to get behind me. All of these things about what is fair and right, where do we get them? Where did it come from? Now, a lot of us say, well, we learn it from our parents. 
But where did it come from? Where did it start? If it's just biology, there is no accounting for why we would have a moral standard or a higher moral belief. Unless there's a moral standard giver or a higher moral standard that instilled that in us. So if we are simply a product of nature and biology and evolution and natural selection, there's no accounting for where this biology comes or this morality comes from. And actually, in a simply biological or evolution world, if that's all it was, we would look at the story of the older disabled man drowning in the pond as, well, that's the way it's supposed to work, right? Natural selection, that the older and the weaker have to die off so that the younger people with their phones can live on, right? It's natural selection. That's what we would view it as, but yet we see, no, that is wrong. The only way we can say something is right or wrong is if there is a higher moral standard deciding what is right and wrong. And that's the only explanation for it. But in our hearts, as believers in God, we believe that there is a higher standard that instilled this in us. There is a verse in Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. It says this. I need my glasses. My kids make fun of me when I put on the glasses. Romans 2, 14. Don't get old, everybody. You need glasses. Romans 2, 14 and 15. It says this. For when Gentiles do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires. So in other words, Paul is saying, even people without a belief in God still do the things that are morally right. They are the law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So that's a lot of words to say. What Paul is saying is even people who don't know God still have something stitched in their heart where they know what is right and what is not right. And they still have a conscience that leads them to do the things that God would say, even though they don't know God, because it is stitched in our lives. I believe this is where we get that moral code, that it points to a creator who designed us and stitched it into our hearts, right? A built-in love for people. Where do we get that? A longing for justice, an ability to lay down our life for perfect strangers. All the things that we would say, yes, that is a higher moral obligation that we have. I believe this comes from God, and science has no explanation for where it could come from other than a higher morality giver. This is not the work of biology, but rather, and this is what a lot of people believe, it must be the work of a designer, someone who designed this moral code to be stitched into our lives. So that's morality. That is one of the things that science and evolutionists, they have no answer for. The universe is the other one. When that philosopher, Immanuel Kant said, the starry hosts or the starry heavens without, the universe, where did this come from, right? Now this is one that faith people and science people tend to disagree on because how old is the universe? Well, scientists would say about 14 billion years. And then we look at the scripture and we're like, well, that doesn't add up. So one of these must be wrong. So we're going to talk about that today. All right? It's going to be good. You're going to like it. In 1929, Edwin Hubble, you know, the Hubble telescope is named after Edwin Hubble. In his laboratory with his telescope was able to see into space further than anyone had ever seen before. And he made a discovery by observing the universe that it was expanding the universe was not a fixed thing. 
It was growing. It was expanding. So scientists saw this and they said, well, if it's expanding, that means it had to start from something smaller and then continue to grow. And so they reversed the order of expansion and said, well, now we can tell that the universe, because of its rate of expansion, if we go back in time to when it started, was about 14 billion years ago. That's when the universe began. Um, now, this changed how science views everything. Now, they said, now, there was, it got to a point where there was nothing, and then there was the Big Bang, when the universe was created, and it has been expanding ever since. And so there was that theory of the Big Bang happened, there was nothing, and then, bang, the universe exists. Now, that is where everything began to exist, all matter and time and energy Everything, every cell, every energy, every law of gravity and everything like that had to exist and it started with the Big Bang. So, what caused the Big Bang? This is what nobody really knows. What caused it? Where did it come from? More importantly, if some, can something come out of nothing? Or what was there before the Big Bang? What was there 15 billion years ago? Now, it couldn't be anything physical because matter didn't exist. It had to be spirit. And it had to be eternal because time didn't exist yet at this time. Now, a believer would say, well, that sounds a whole lot like Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he used a big bang to create it, right? Now, interesting, when the big bang theory first began circulating, it wasn't the church that pushed back against it. It wasn't the religious people that said, this is, this is clearly idolatry. It was actually the scientific community who pushed against the big bang theory because they believed it sounded too much like the Bible. Like there was something that caused the universe to exist and they were the ones that said, no, that can't be right, that can't be right. So what caused the Big Bang? Science has no answer for this. Now, some have tried to explain it with the nothing theory, right? The nothing theory, what happened? The Big Bang occurred where all matter and time and energy began to exist. What caused it? Nothing. It just happened. Nothing. Okay, so we know that that doesn't really hold water. And we know this, especially if you're parents, because we have heard the nothing theory several times. I'm in the kitchen, and in the basement, I hear a big bang, a big crash of some sort, and I go to the top of the stairs, and I'm like, hey, what happened? Nothing. <laughs> nothing happened. It just, nothing. Now, I don't know who did it. I don't know what it was, but I know it wasn't nothing, right? I know it wasn't nothing, because I heard it. I heard it. And so then I go downstairs and realize that some of the kids have been crawling on a bookshelf or something, and the whole thing crashed and all that. So I don't think the nothing theory holds water. Nothing sounds a lot like when you don't really have a good answer that you want to share. Nothing. Nothing happened, right? Now... We look at the complexity of design. We look at the complexity of our universe. Let's talk about that for a minute. After the Big Bang, when um, the, the, the more science explores the universe, it speaks immensely to the complex detail that had to be in place for this universe to exist. Okay, now I know this is kind of science-y, and this is where I got a lot of the stuff out of those books. It was, I actually found it really, really interesting. There was such precise levels of chemicals, temperatures at exactly the right time, the rate of the speed of light, the rate of gravity, the strength of electromagnetic forces and nuclear forces all had to exist at exact 
like millionth of a millionth of degree exact specifics in order for this universe to even be able to exist and sustain itself. Otherwise, it would have, by their scientific views, collapsed or not been created. I mean, just, again, I didn't know anything about this before, but just the, the temperature at which hydrogen turns into carbon and carbon was necessary at a certain time for then life to be possible millions of years later. All of these exact scientific precision elements that had to be in place that all had to exist at the exact correct level for this to be possible. Now, the odds of that happening mathematically, if any, was anyone here last week for church? I know two weeks in a row is a lot. So um, we talked about how in the Old Testament there was prophecies about Jesus and the mathematic probability that even eight of the prophecies would come through in Jesus. We talked about that mathematics say it is one in 10 with 17 zeros behind it. So we called that officially a bazillion. That's the official number for that. Okay, so now the odds of the universe coming into existence, would we say it's a bazillion? One in, it is a whole lot more than that. It is one in 10 with 138 zeros. So that's all the necessary factors to be in place for the universe to exist. I don't know what that number's called, so officially we're gonna call that 11 bazillion. That's the biggest number I can think of. It's impossible. It's impossible. Scientists, astrophysicists would say that there were 120 different variables and laws of physics that had to be perfectly aligned to the million millionth of a degree for the universe to exist as it has. Now, mathematically, that's impossible. And beyond that, those laws of physics that had to be precisely dialed in when the Big Bang happened, where did those come from, right? Where did, those, where did gravity come from if it had to be there in order for the Big Bang to happen? Science doesn't have an answer for that. One theory, they say, is called the multiverse theory. Marvel fans know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> that there were trillions of universes created, and what I understand about the multiverse is each of these universes had its own Spider-Man <laughs> in them. But there were trillions of universes created with the Big Bang, and ours just happened to be the one that had it. You know, you had a trillion universes, and everyone dialed in the, let's try this factor with this universe, and this factor with this universe, and ours was the one that had every dial correctly set to exist. That's the multiverse theory. Ours is the only one that survived. The other theory is that ours was the only universe that started with the Big Bang, and we were just really lucky. We won the lottery, that we were the one in 11 bazillion chance and we just made it, like, hooray, we, we made it. The third theory is that this level of precision can only reflect the action of a creator or a designer. A designer that designed everything with such precision that a universe was able to sustain itself. This is made by design and not by chance. This is made by design. You look around at the intricate levels, and as more science discovers the intricate details of the human body and cells and DNA and the universe and the stars and all of these things, it leads to thinking that there is a designer. It can't just be chance. I have a picture that I want to throw up on the screen of two, two images. So two kind of great tourist attractions. The one on the left is Mount Rushmore. I mean, the one on the right is Mount Rushmore. The one on the left is the Grand Canyon. So let's look at the Grand Canyon and we would say, wow, look at how that evolved over time, the erosion, and how that water, the river down, eventually over millions and millions of years kind of created this enormous Grand Canyon. You look at that, and isn't nature amazing? And look at that beautiful thing. Like, it just happened the way erosion works 
On the right is Mount Rushmore. We would never say, wow, look at the way the wind blew the sand and it caused those faces to appear, right? Look at how the birds came and pecked out the eyes of the, with such precision. We would never say that, right? One obviously has been designed. One we could explain away by time and chance and factors, but the one you look at and you say, that has to be a design. Somebody had to do that. That, no matter how many windstorms happen, Mount Rushmore is never, it's not, a, it's not a one in a 11 bazillion. It's just, it doesn't work that way. Design does not come out of randomness. So when I look at our universe, I'm like, of course it points to a designer. Many scientists say it points to a designer. We can now map the human genome. We can map out somebody's DNA. And as scientists see our existence down to the smallest molecular level, they see order and detail. There is a unique code, the human genome and DNA, that the, the whole makeup of the human body, every cell, can be mapped out with a code. It's like our existence has been digitized. And they describe it as an incredibly intricate code of information. And they describe it as this. It's like somebody placed over every living organism a code which is holding it all together. This is what scientists say. They don't know where it came from or why when they get down, the more science discovers, they find more design, more detail that speaks to a designer. Well, I think it sounds a lot like Colossians 1, 16 and 17, it says this. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Boy, when I look at scripture and think there is reason to believe this is valid and accurate, and then I hear what scientists say about our human bodies and about the universe, I say, yeah, it makes sense. God set this in motion. God created everything. He is the designer. So the last thing I want to focus on is what a lot of people have a hard time navigating through. The Genesis account of creation versus how old science says that the earth is. Okay? Now, we have, in if you read through the scripture, there is the genealogies listed. So if you ever get stuck in a bad chapter of scripture where it's the begats and this person begat this person, and then it's like three chapters of names, and you're like, I got to stop going to church, right? Maybe that's why some people stop going to church is because of the begats. But it's actually important information because we can look at the generations from Adam to Abraham, and then we have the generations from Abraham to David, and then we have the generations from David to Jesus. And we know that Jesus walked on the earth, historically verified, about 2,000 years ago. So then we can say, well, we take the average generational length and how old people lived, and we can go back to where God created Adam and Eve and say, well, that, by our calculations, happened about eight, you know, six to 8,000 years ago, somewhere in there. Well, then science would say, yeah, you sound crazy because there are fossils of species that have been extinct for millions of years. How can the earth only be 10,000 years old? We, we have dinosaurs and we have all of these other things that the Bible has no answer for, they claim. And so they say, well, this clearly can't be right because the earth cannot be 10,000 years old. Okay, so I want to look at that a little bit. And that they believe that God, and the Bible would say that God created everything in six days. 
six days, and then he rested on the seventh day. And this happened about, let's say, 8,000 years ago. So which is right? There's a couple of different views on this. Which one is right, science or the Bible? Because remember, I started out this message with science and the Bible can coexist. They don't fight against each other. So a couple of views that people have. That those six days of creation were not literal 24-hour days. That God created the heavens and the earth and humanity and all the animals and men and women and over six days, but they were like one day happened and then there might have been millions of years. And then the second day of creation, kind of like six periods of creation. So that's one view, that those six days of creation were not literal 24-hour days. And a lot of people believe that that is accurate. We're not going to make a show of hands because at the end of this, I'm not going to say which one is the right answer because I'm not that smart. Again, music degree. Um, a literal view of Genesis other, other people have. Another view is that Genesis is literally scientifically correct, that God created the earth in six actual days 10,000 years ago. And we would say, well, how in the world can that be with what we know of science? Well, those people would say that God created an earth and a universe that was aged. Like, not everything was one day old when God created it. If you were in the Garden of Eden when Adam first got created and you looked at Adam and you went up to him and said, how old are you? He would say, about an hour and a half old. And you'd look at him and be like, no, 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 that can't be right because you've got, you know, some peach fuzz growing here. You have to at least be in middle school, right? You would say, no, you can't possibly be one day old. God created Adam aged. You'd look at the trees in the Garden of Eden and say, well, how old is that tree? Oh, about a day old. Well, no, that can't be right. That tree is easily 200 years old. Or that mountain over there had to be there for a million years. Well, no, it got created yesterday. So it's possible, and people with this view believe that God created a universe that was aged. That God created a universe that looks like it had been expanding for 14 billion years. God created an earth that looked like it had been around for billions of years, just like he did with the animals that had been around for many, many, many years. Okay, so a lot of people believe that. A third view of this is that God created the heavens and the earth, and maybe it was 14 billion years ago in the Big Bang, and God set the laws in motion, and things expanded and changed and evolved according to his design, which led to people whom he revealed himself to in the garden and revealed himself to Abraham and wanted to set himself up as the one true God. And when we have that view, if you have that view, you recognize that the book of Genesis was never intended to be a science textbook with all the scientific answers. It was in no way revealing the math of creation, but rather, and remember, the Genesis wasn't written until hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later. Everything in Genesis was stories that were handed down from generation to generation. Now the takeaway, as people heard about the story of Genesis, the takeaway was not, well, how many years was it? Was it six actual days? And what about the universe? The takeaway was, in a world of pluralistic gods everywhere, there is one true God who made everything, including humanity, and he wants to know humanity. He wants a relationship. So that would have been the takeaway for people in the, in the time of you know, the Old Testament. It was not meant to give all the answers. And many theologians believe this view. Many theologians believe this view, that maybe the universe could be 14 billion years old, and God set it in motion. 
and that Genesis is not meant to be a literal scientific interpretation. So some of you might think, well, that sounds like heresy to me. So there's all sorts of views. You might have a different view. Maybe you have the nothing theory. I just don't think about it, and one day I'll ask God about it. That's okay, too. So, but my takeaway is that, is that isn't necessarily that I got to know all the answers. Six days, 14 billion years, what about the fossils that are that old? Like, did Adam have a belly button? Why did he need a belly button? All of these things. Like, you just don't, you could think about all of these things, but yet you're missing the point of what I believe Genesis is saying. There is one God. There is one true God who made everything. There is one true God that wants to have a relationship with you, that sent Jesus to the earth to die for our sins, rose again, ascended to heaven so that we could have salvation and a relationship with him. That's my faith. That's where my faith is based. So I'm not threatened by science. I am in, in great confidence believing God made everything. I don't know how and when it all happened. That he reached out to his people caused a way for salvation, and we can know him. That is the main thing, right? That is the main thing. So I want to apply this personally as we wrap up here in about a minute. Personal application. What does this mean for us? Now, some of us really like the details of, yeah, I want to know how this and the science behind it all. That's great. Study it. It's not a threat to God's existence when you study science. But here's the personal application that I want to leave you with. In light of everything we've looked at with human creation and the universe and the human genome project and all of these things, is this. You are God's creation. You are God's creation. God created you in his image. God created you individually in his image to know him, to worship him, to recognize that he loves you. He made you. Your value... I want to talk to maybe the teenagers and the young people for a minute. Look up here. You might have zoned out for a while because this sounds a lot like school. But here, I want you to know this. The takeaway for you in this is that you are made by God in his image. And your value is based on that alone. That's it. So the world is going to bombard you with other things. Well, you're valuable if you're this or if you look like this or if you accomplish this. And you... Your school is going to bombard you with things about other things that cause you to have value. Social media is a dumpster fire for this. But your value, you got to get this, if anything else today, your value comes from the fact that you were created by God in his image. That is why you have immense value. There is nothing that the world will say or do to you that can change that. So when you are feeling like the world is like, oh, I just don't, I just don't think I have value to these people or to this world, you got to know the creation of you by God is what gives you your value, and that will not change. And that's for all of us. That's for all of us. You were created by God. So not only should that fill us with confidence and, and worth and value in spite of what the world says, but also it should cause us to think about how we are living our life. We are not here by random chance. We're not here because all the factors happen to be exactly right for Earth to be created and humanity to evolve. It is not a random thing. If you're wondering why you are here, it is because God made you and put you here to know him, to worship him. So that should have great ramifications for how we decide to live our life. 
That should have great ramifications for how we want to spend our time. We are God's creation, created for a purpose, to know him and to worship him. So I want you this morning to take that with you this week. What does it mean to have a creative creator God breathing life into you, wanting to walk with you through every season? This should change how we live. We should have joy. We should take chances. We should find our identity in Christ. We should prioritize how we spend our time and money because there is a God who created you to live for his kingdom purposes. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer today. Heavenly Father, we just take a moment and we, again, open our hearts. Sometimes we just need to come to church to be reminded and have some perspective of why we are here, what we're doing on this earth. And so, Lord, for all the ways that we have misprioritized things or that we have set ourselves up as the God of our own lives. Lord, again, we open our hearts to you. We lay our lives down and we say, you are the one true God. You created me and you have a plan for my life to know you, to follow after you, to become more like your son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, do that work in our lives. I pray that you would just seal this in our heart. I pray for all the young people that are maybe struggling with feeling valuable or, or where their identity and worth is found. It is found in God as a child of God. I pray that you would seal that in every heart that it would never be shaken by what the world wants to throw at us. And I pray that we would just be able to walk this out as people of faith, being the light in the world, being a light in a dark world, being people of joy and optimism and peace and kindness, because that's who you are and that's who you have made us to be. We thank you and we praise you for all these things. Give us a wonderful day today. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen. Amen.